Good morning, everybody. So wonderful to see you here. My name is Tim Park. For those gathered here in person, if this is your first time here, a special welcome to you. For those gathering online, we're always grateful that you join us from wherever you are. I just want to give you an exciting chair update. We announced a few weeks back our new chairs are, are being produced as I speak right now, and they are coming in the, in the, in the next uh, maybe three, four weeks, they should be done, and they'll be shipped here, so we'll have nice, brand new, and plenty more, so thank you. Right now, I just look out there, and yes, we'll be able to uh, put out many more of our new chairs with nice cushion, and so it's going to be wonderful, so get ready for that. They should arrive sometime probably at the beginning or middle of June. Before we open up God's Word this morning, I want to share some exciting news. Now, this is simultaneously exciting for one of our staff members and then also sad for us. Uh, one of our faithful staff members, Kristen Neal, and her family, her husband Steve, their three wonderful children, John, Riley, and Gavin, they are moving to Indiana this summer. Yes, God's taking them many, many miles away. And Kristen has been an integral part of our team for six years, and we have just been so blessed uh, by the ministry that God has uh, given to not only our church but our community through Kristen's faithfulness. And at the end of June, they'll start making their plans to move to Indiana. So uh, the Neal family's final Sunday with us is June 26th. Uh, that means we still have two months, all right? We have two months together before they make the move to Evansville, Indiana, their new community. And I want you to know this, that our loss is Evansville's, Evansville's gain. And God is going to use the Neal family to make Jesus known in their new community. And, uh, and so... As we approach uh, their final week with us, we'll have an opportunity to hear some parting words from Kristen as we make our way uh, toward their final week here. Until that happens, for the next two months, Kristen is as busy as ever, planning for events that'll take place far after they're gone. That's amazing. But that's the kind of heart that Kristen has. And so Kristen, Steve, and to your children, thank you for being such a major part of the E-Free family. Can we thank God for them? No doubt there will be many tears between now and then, and we're going to be able to hear from Christian again as that final weekend approaches. Well, this morning we are continuing in our series Servant King, the Gospel of Mark, and today's message title is Overcoming Unbelief. Overcoming Unbelief, and we'll be in Mark chapter 6, and we'll cover the entire chapter, verses 1 to 56. And by the time we're done today, we will have worked our way through the first six chapters of this wonderful gospel. And if you've been with us throughout this series so far, you know that we are currently in Act 1. 
of this three-act drama that Mark has laid out for us. So if you recall, Act 1 takes place in the city of Galilee. And that's chapters 1 through 8a. People see Jesus performing miracles, and they ask the question, who is this Jesus? They marvel at the works they see. Who is this Jesus? Chapters 8b to 10 are on the way from Galilee to another city called Jerusalem. And in Act 2, there's another question. But it's not the people, the masses who ask the question, it's the disciples. And they ask the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? That's an important question because the answer to that question will not only impact Jesus' future, it'll affect the lives of his disciples. And it doesn't end there. It'll affect all of our lives here in the 21st century. And then Act 3 is chapters 11 to 16. And that takes place in Jerusalem. And the focal point, as we saw over the Easter season, was on the paradox of Jesus becoming king. And so today, as we make our way through chapter 6, I think it's going to be a good opportunity for every single one of us here in this room and everybody who's watching online to look within ourselves and ask this one question. Is my faith in Jesus as big as it ought to be? Is my faith in Jesus as big as it ought to be? Or are we, even as followers of Jesus Christ, are we sometimes doubting what he can do in our lives? That's the question. So we begin in verse 1. So I invite you to turn to Mark chapter 6. I'll read to you starting in verse 1 through 6a. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And then they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Familiarity breeds contempt. Have you heard that phrase? Familiarity breeds contempt. The meaning behind this phrase is that extensive knowledge of or close association with someone can sometimes lead to a loss of respect for that person. Familiarity 
breeds contempt. Oftentimes, relatives or close friends of celebrities, public figures, famous athletes, oftentimes these relatives or close friends look at them and then then they look at those adoring fans out there who wait for autographs, who wait in line for days to see these uh, uh, stars in concert. And the, re- the relatives or the close friends of these public figures, these celebrities, look at all the adoring fans, and then they think to themselves, wow, but I know the real person. I've seen that celebrity without makeup. I've seen him or her perform that song a million times. It's getting old by now. Familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus said that a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. In the passage that we just read, Jesus was going back to his old stomping ground, his hometown the place where he learned to walk and talk, the place where he honed his craft as a carpenter, the place where he set out to begin his public ministry. And he returned home to offer salvation to the very people who needed it the most, those who were closest to him, his family, his relatives, his friends. Sadly, many of them responded in unbelief. There's an online publication. It's called Kids Talk About God. It's a very fascinating online publication. And in this online publication, kids are often asked certain questions. And as I browse this website a question was asked to little kids. And the question was this. Why did Jesus say a prophet has no honor in his own country? Now, that's a deep question to ask little kids. But listen to the answer given by a six-year-old girl that blew me away. She said this. They knew Jesus when he was a kid. They just said, hi, Jesus. Hi, Jesus. But they didn't know he was God. They didn't know he was God. Familiarity breeds contempt. That's quite an answer from a six-year-old girl. What a smart girl. Jesus returned home to offer salvation to the people who needed it the most. And they said, oh, Jesus, we know him. Our neighbor's kid. They didn't know he was God. So they responded in unbelief. Now, it's important to know this that when Jesus arrived on the scene, he didn't go by himself. He brought with him his disciples. And that's important because at that time, whenever a rabbi entered a city, he would always bring his disciples. 
A rabbi would never enter a city alone. It was important to bring disciples because the disciples represented respect. You see, the disciples, as they accompanied Jesus, they were showing everybody, here's a man that you ought to respect. And yet to their dismay, to the dismay of the disciples, they walked into Jesus' hometown and they were shocked at the unbelief. How could his own relatives treat him that way? They had witnessed miracles, the disciples did. They witnessed Jesus going from town to town, teaching. And now they were witnessing the harsh rejection of Jesus by his own. Now, as the disciples witnessed this rejection, we cannot overlook an important fact. As the disciples saw Jesus being rejected by his own hometown, do you know what that was signaling? That was telling the disciples, that's what's in store for you. They saw their leader being rejected. This was a glimpse of what they would experience. So chapter 6 is a glimpse of Act 2, right? Act 2, the disciples ask the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? They're getting a glimpse. He's being rejected, but not only him, they too will face rejection. As Christ followers today in the 21st century, guess what? We too will face rejection. And oftentimes, by those closest to us. Our family members, relatives, siblings, parents, children, co-workers, friends. But remember the words of Apostle Paul when he spoke to his spiritual son, Timothy. He said, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You can find that in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12. And again, sadly, some of the most difficult rejections will come from those closest to us. That's why, church, this is such a good reminder for every one of us here to never take one another for granted. We must never take one another for granted. Our church family, our relatives, our friends, our co-workers. You know, isn't it true that sometimes we don't appreciate what we have until it's gone? We don't appreciate what we really have until it's taken from us. So we cannot take one another for granted. And this passage is a sobering reminder that we cannot let our relationship with Jesus drift apart. If anything, as we read this passage, our awe of Jesus 
ought to be even greater and greater with each passing day. Our mindset ought to be, Jesus, you never cease to amaze me. May our passion for him grow every day. May our hunger for him lead us to God's word every day. May our reliance on him lead us to prayer every day. And may our commitment to him lead us to fulfill his mission in our lives every day. Jesus, you never cease to amaze me. Let's not let our familiarity with Jesus lead us to complacency in our lives. We're going to continue on to the second part of verse 6. We'll read through verse 13. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over impure spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff, a stick. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra shirt. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, leave that place and shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. When Jesus sent his disciples out on this mission, he gave them clear instructions. Take no food, no money, no bag. By the way, when it says no bag, it was referring to a beggar's bag. At that time, it was popular for people to carry around a beggar's bag so that people could fill. Jesus said, no, don't even take a beggar's bag bag, let alone an expensive backpack. For those of you who like to go camping or hiking for days on end, you know very well how important, how critical it is to be well prepared for that trip. So what you do is, days before the trip, you make a visit to REI. The glorious REI. If you, don't know, know, if you don't know what REI is, it's basically the Adventure Seekers uh, Disneyland, paradise. It's the store that stocks everything you need for every adventure. It's got every imaginable hiking boot out there. And weather-resistant clothing and kayaks and tents and backpacks of all shapes and sizes and freeze-dried food and stoves to heat your freeze-dried food. When Jesus sent his disciples on this initial mission, guess what? He did not give them a gift card to REI. He said, no, see that stick? You take that and that's it. Don't even take a second shirt. Just turn your shirt inside out and turn your other articles of clothing inside out if you catch my drift. But why? Why would Jesus give his disciples these specific instructions? Here's why. It would keep them 
utterly dependent on God. And when you are utterly dependent on God, it keeps you humble. The disciples were to go out in poverty to serve those who were poor and hungry. Jesus did not send them out as a conquering army. Hey, look, we're here. We're the answer to all your problems. Sometimes Christians can make the mistake of going out on a missions trip with a superiority complex. Thinking that we have all the answers, we have all the know-how, that the way we do things is the best way. And so sometimes Christians arrive on the scene like a conquering army. Jesus said, you go in poverty to minister to the poor and hungry. Don't go and demand things. Don't go expecting to be treated like first class. That's why he said to them, the first home that invites you in, you go and you stay there till the end of your trip. Don't leave that home until you leave that town. You know why he said that? Because the disciples, they would have been tempted had they gone to that first home if they received another offer the next day. Oh, but my house is bigger. Why don't you come stay in my house? Jesus said, no, no upgrades to the presidential suite for you. You go to the first house and you stay there to show how thankful and appreciative you are. And so Mark includes this section in this chapter for a specific reason. He includes this preliminary mission, and that's what it was, a preliminary mission, because basically it was going to in a sense, foreshadow what was going to come later on in the greater mission after Jesus' death and resurrection. Remember, what's the question that's asked in Act 2? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? The disciples will find out firsthand what it means. They will suffer. They will struggle. Way back in week one, we introduced you to the takeaway from the book of Mark. It's been a long time. But that takeaway has followed us all throughout the series. And the takeaway is this. True greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. That's the takeaway. True greatness is found in serving others like the Savior. And the disciples would learn that firsthand on this missions trip. And way back in chapter 1, we were introduced to a man by the name of John the Baptist. Remember, he was the forerunner. Remember, John said, uh, he must increase and I must decrease. He must become greater, Jesus. I must become less. In this chapter, chapter 6, Mark reintroduces us to John the Baptist in verses 14 to 29. And he does so by way of 
a flashback. He's flashing back to what happened to John the Baptist. And I'm going to spare you the details this morning, but I'm going to ask you, maybe on your own, even as you sit there, feel free to read through verses 14 to 29. And what you can read is just an astonishing account of a gruesome death that John suffered, a beheading by the command of Herod. John the Baptist experienced firsthand what it meant to suffer for Jesus. And he includes this account, Mark does. He includes this, in a sense, as kind of a sandwich piece. Because underneath the bun was what we just saw. We saw the disciples on their preliminary mission. We'll see some other things that will happen in just a bit. And sandwiched in between is this flashback to John's death to demonstrate what it is going to be like for those who follow Jesus. John the Baptist was a humble steward of God's grace. Talk about faithful. Now, you and I, we've talked about this before, we are stewards here at Ephraim Church. Long after we leave, others will be stewards. Long before we arrived, others were stewards. You and I, we don't own this place. We are but mere stewards. And we ought to have the mindset of John the Baptist, who was doing ministry for a greater ministry, not our own praise. Talk about a humble steward. As we continue on in verse 30, we'll see the other bun of this sandwich. Verse 30 says this, the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Now, in verse 30, we see the word apostles. This is the first and only time that Mark uses the word apostles to refer to the twelve. Now, later on in their ministry, the apostles, they would be called apostles. And that would refer to their position or their uh, status as apostles. But here in chapter 6 of Mark, when Mark uses apostles, he's using it not as their position, but rather as their function. They were sent out to do this on behalf of Jesus. And again, this would be a preliminary mission that would foreshadow the later, greater mission. 
the disciples return from their mission. They're back with Jesus. They're tired. Jesus senses it. And so he says, let's go off to a solitary place. Now look at verse 35. By this time, it was late in the day. So his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than half a year's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Well, how many loaves do you have, he asked. Go and see. When they found out, they said, five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. He then gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of the men who had eaten was five thousand. Some of you may be familiar with this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 with five loaves, two fish. Maybe some of you know somebody who can go to the pantry in the kitchen, look around, find a couple canned goods, go to the fridge, look at last night's leftovers, and then in five minutes, boom, an entire feast. Some of you know people who can do that. I mean, that takes skill. But I doubt they've ever fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And by the way, many scholars think it was many more than just 5,000 because if you account for the women and children, you just add to that number. Do you know what's so significant about this miracle? Don't let this get lost in this. The miracle itself is, itself is wonderful. He fed thousands with five fish, I'm sorry, five loaves of bread and two fish. What's significant is this. Before this miracle, remember in the preliminary mission, Jesus sent his disciples out two by two, and he said to them, take nothing You go out by faith and rely on the hospitality and the generosity of those you come by who will be sent your way by God. God took care of them, and they all returned. And yet here, when presented with an opportunity to return the hospitality, what do they say? Jesus, send them away. Let them buy their own food. And when Jesus responds with, you give them something to eat, the disciples respond with, it's too expensive. Jesus, that's going to cost me more than half of my year's salary following you. It's too expensive. 
There's no way. Do you think maybe the disciples forgot who they were talking to? It's incredible to think that the disciples watched Jesus perform miracle after miracle after miracle, and yet all they could do was stand there in unbelief. Just like the relatives of Jesus in his hometown welcomed him in unbelief, now the disciples, they were demonstrating unbelief in the man they had witnessed perform miracle after miracle. Thankfully, Jesus was greater than their unbelief. You know, it's not only unbelievers who struggle with unbelief. Oftentimes, followers of Jesus Christ, we struggle with our own unbelief. How many times have God's people complained, if we only had enough money, we could do something? One author says this, the first step is not to measure our resources, but to determine God's will and trust him to meet the needs. Again, the first step is not to measure our resources, but to determine God's will and trust him to meet the need. That's why we ought not to go into a meeting amongst leaders or, you know, a budget meeting or a finance meeting and just think, okay, here's what we have, so here's only what we can do. Our first step is never to measure our resources. So in one single miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 men, in one single miracle, Jesus simultaneously shows his disciples what a true shepherd does. He feeds the flock. And at the same time, He shows his disciples that they need greater faith. They need greater faith. Let's continue on in verse 45. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida. While he dismissed the crowd after leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars, because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them. And the wind died down. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. When they had crossed over, they landed in Gennesaret and anchored there. As soon as they got out of the boat, people recognized Jesus. They ran throughout that whole region and carried the sick on mats to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he went, into villages, towns, or countryside, they placed the sick in the marketplaces. They begged him to let them touch even the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. So, Jesus just fed the 5,000, right? 
the 5,000 men, thousands more. He was trying to show his disciples, you need to have more faith. So now, they're in a boat. He's on land. He sees them struggling. He walks to them on water, and they go, ah! They're frightened. It's a ghost! In their minds, they're like, unbelievable! That can't be. That can't be Jesus. It must be a ghost. Unbelievable. Now, that word unbelief, it's the word that gets thrown around quite a bit, right? Especially in the world of sports. Oh, the outfielder made an unbelievable catch to rob the batter of a home run. The golfer made an unbelievable putt to win the tournament. You know what? It's not unbelievable if it happened. You ever think about that? If it happened, it's not unbelievable. You know, over the years, we've seen many amazing, unbelievable putts. Just go to YouTube. When Jesus calmed the storm in chapter 4, remember we saw that last week? Pastor Lou taught us that. When Jesus calmed the storm in chapter 4, when he fed the thousands of people with five loaves and two fish, and when he walked on water to his disciples, here's what he was saying to his own, to his own disciples. He was saying this, believe in me, trust in me, have faith in me, believe in me, trust in me, have faith in me, because no one else could do what Jesus did. When the disciples saw this figure walking to them on the water, you know what they ought to have said? Oh, it could only be Jesus. Because only Jesus is God in the flesh. Unbelievable to see Jesus walking on water? No. Divine? Yes. That is why, church, from this day forward, I declare the word unbelievable uh, no longer usable by Christians. (laughs) Right? The word unbelievable ought not to be part of our vocabulary. Only Jesus, because he is God in the flesh. We should never doubt Jesus. We should never doubt what he can do in our lives. We should never doubt what he can do in our church. I want to leave you with a quote that I hope will bring you some encouragement as you go forward this week in your journey of faith in Jesus. And I, and I hope this will stick with us this week. Take a look. Jesus never gives up on the disciples in spite of their failures, but takes them through the whole process again and again and again and again so that they may understand. Isn't it comforting to know? Isn't it comforting to know that Jesus never gives up on us in spite of all of our failures? Let's believe in him. Let's trust in him. 
Let's have faith in Him. And when we do, we will see Him do the most amazing things in our lives. Amen?